The Retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. Kind of a, another crazy weather day in Colorado. Um, I was lucky enough yesterday to get my lawn mowed in between the rain. It had gotten much, much longer than is healthy for the lawnmower, but I made it. And it sounds like uh, Jim, I'm sure, will clue us in, but it sounds like he's in the middle of a giant hailstorm right now. So uh, I guess we'll hope his internet holds up. Um and hope his roof holds up as well. Keep him protected from the, I mean, the, the hail out here can be pretty dangerous. So um, no tornado warnings that I've heard of, but that's the, we're, we're heading into that season here in Colorado. So we've got uh, social security questions coming up, at least a couple of those. <coughs> Excuse me. Then we've got um, a whole bag of stuff. I don't know if we've, we'll probably have a couple of Secure Act questions, etc. But I'll let Jim kind of clue us into to that. So once he uh, unmutes his microphone, maybe he's got it muted so the hail sounds won't come through. But uh, yes, it is uh, pretty stormy here, folks. I don't know if my internet is going to stay in or out. When you were chatting, Chris, you were breaking up. I don't uh, know if I am. But oh, we're you're nice stop. and clear, surprisingly. So. Excellent. We'll go with we're it. Gonna, we're going to start with Social Security questions, as we always do. Uh, if it turns off, if I get logged off, or if I can't hear you and understand what you're saying, I'll let you know. Uh, it's still hailing. It's been hailing for about 15 minutes, folks. But now the hail is mixed in, it seems, with some quite heavy rain as well. Hmm. See, that's the thing with Colorado. It is bone dry. Don't get me wrong. It's bone dry. But when we get rain, you get it all at once. You get a month's worth of rain in a storm. Okay. It's it's the bizarrest thing. Okay. And uh, I'm pretty much getting probably, for Colorado standards, a month's worth of rain in one storm. Oh, well, make uh, sure you store that up somehow. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could. I wish they let us, but we can't. In Colorado, exactly. you can't catch more than 110 gallons of water off your roof yeah. unless you have more than 35 acres of land. Yeah. I have 10 acres. So uh, you, you can't catch water. You can't save it. You can't store it. The notion that someone owns rain and literally that's 
the rule in Colorado, the law. Well, the whole Western U.S. pretty much, yeah. The whole Western U.S., I guess. People own the rain. My attitude is keep your rain off my roof. But <laughs> there you go. <laughs> it's, when I found out you weren't allowed to capture water here, I was beside myself. Yeah, it's shocking to people that, you know, from parts of the country that rain is, rain is so plentiful, they <laughs> try to give it away and can't. So, yeah, it's kind of weird. So anyways, folks, it is a stormy afternoon here on a Thursday. Hopefully this will all work out. We're going to start with Social Security mm -hmm. questions. We're going to jump into a secure question after that and a new question of the week and some older questions, assuming, of course, my Internet holds out. But let me begin. Uh, I have a long and a short. I'll probably begin, if you don't mind, with the longer Social Security question, Chris. Okay, sure. And then we'll uh, jump into the rather short Social Security question. All right. You you will definitely, everybody listening to this podcast will definitely get the hint from this listener. And listener sent it in in February. So we have been doing this hint thing since February. Mm. I, I To me, it seems like it's something recent. Yeah. Uh, it's been a while. <laughs> apparently, because this is from February, this uh, Social Security question. Dear Jim and Chris, I'm a longtime listener. From the state, are you ready for the hint? Okay. From the state that has, oh, this is so easy. If anybody listening gets this wrong, your, your homework assignment is to open up Google Maps and draw the United States 50 times. Okay. I'm a longtime listener from the state with a rapidly disappearing, very salty lake. Hmm. I don't even pretend you have to well, think of Well, no. This. I mean, the obvious answer has got to be Utah with the Great Salt Lake. But uh, isn't there a big old lake that's kind of salty in California that's rapidly disappearing too? I don't think I think there is one. So that could have been a trick question. But I suspect since you were so adamant it was obvious, it's got to be Utah. I, I only heard of the Great Salt Lake. I never heard that California has a... A big salt lake that's just, it's called the ocean. They have well, an yeah, ocean. That, <laughs> that's, that's still very salty, yeah. Anyways, you are correct. So ding, ding, ding. You're one for one so far Excellent. on states. Excellent. But I'm amazed. February, we're getting the hint. So I started this a long time ago. I enjoy your podcast and have appreciated your deep dives into nerdy topics. He must be chatting about you there. I certainly don't talk about nerdy topics. I will turn 70 in September of 2026 and plan to turn on my Social Security then. My wife will reach her full retirement age of 66 and 10 months in August of 2026. I am the higher earner and will, see, and will receive a larger Social Security benefit, approximately 4500 a month. My wife will only have a small benefit. She was a teacher covered by a pension outside of the Social Security system. <clears throat> so I think you can see mm -hmm. listeners, WEP and GPO perhaps is his question. Mm -hmm. Let's find out. He's got one, two, three, kind of four parts to his questions. So I told you this was a kind of long one. Mm -hmm. Part one. When I turn, I will turn 70 in September 26, will my first payment be received in October, 
of 2026 be prorated because of my late September birthday? Or will it be the full benefit amount? And again, he was born in, uh, it doesn't say when his birthday was. Uh, late in September 2026. It's going to be late in September, 70, yeah, so based on that question. Do you want me to read the other three or do you want to answer well, this Well, let's one? tackle that one first because I don't think we've ever been asked this question before. So this is exciting. I love when we get a, a new question that no one's thought to ask before. Um, the question essentially is, do they prorate that first payment because I didn't turn, you know, I'm claiming my age 70 benefit, but I was only 70 maybe for a few days if I turn 70 late in the month. Uh, no, they. if you're eligible for a benefit in that month, you get the whole benefit. It's kind of an all or nothing type of a situation. So it doesn't matter when during the month you were, you were uh, born. The uh, only thing it really affects is what day the following month you're going to receive your benefits. They uh, uh, look at your your day of birth during the month to determine whether you're going to get your Social Security benefit paid to you on the second, third, or fourth Wednesday of each month. But it's going to be the full benefit for the month, so no proration. That's an excellent question. I, I can't believe we haven't faced that before, but I have no uh, memory of that being asked to us uh, before now. So congratulations. You hit us with a new one. Was that my cue? That's your cue. Gotcha. Okay. Oh, good news. The hail is stopping. I hope I didn't jinx myself. <laughs> yeah. Kind of comes in waves sometimes, so. <laughs> well, gee, thanks. Uh, I, I hope it doesn't here. And I'm trying to find the email. I all of a sudden can't find the email. You can tell this is live recorded from radio. <laughs> I was just reading from it, but I clicked out. I told oh, you, no. I, don't, I don't do this printed anymore. I'm trying okay. to be hip and techy. Okay. Second question. If my wife claims her own smaller benefit at her full retirement age of 66 and 10 months in August of 2026, will Social Security automatically top her off to her larger spousal benefit one month later once my benefit starts in September of 2026? So the wife is going to start in August. He's going to delay till September. Will she get an automatic bump? Like, I guess he's saying the wife will get one month of benefit and then boom, a bump up. Mm -hmm. It should be. It should be because when you file your benefits and you're so close, you could actually go in together or kind of claim at the same time. And um, uh, especially if you're in there together, they're going to kind of make sure everything is coordinated properly. But if they have a clear understanding that your spouses and you indicate your, your benefit they that should happen basically automatically um never hurts to proactively say something or or look online if you're doing this online um you can claim most of these benefits now through the online portal without going in but certainly if you're in there together which should be fine to go in together when you're since you're claiming so close to one another as far as months go only one month off uh you know, to make it clear that that's what you want to have happen. That as soon as as soon as you claim in September, you want the spousal benefit for her to begin, and they'll probably say, "Oh yeah, yeah, we would do that automatically." Is my guess what their response will be. Now, I'll point out, I don't know that from what you've told me that she's going to qualify for a spousal benefit. Um, just putting that out there. Maybe some of these future questions will get into some more detail on on the GPO, uh, the government pension offset, which affects spousal benefits. 
but uh, her own benefit is certainly going to be affected by WEP. Uh, well, almost certainly. Depends on how many years of Social Security she has, but it sounds like she had a, just a little Social Security and then a, a non-covered pension as a teacher. So her benefit, her own benefit, is going to be affected by the windfall elimination provision, which won't wipe it out completely. WEP will never eliminate your benefit. But GPO can completely eliminate a spousal or survivor benefit, depending on the numbers. So I'm going to trust that you've looked into the numbers and she, in fact, will get a spousal bump up. And if uh, she's owed that, it should be essentially automatic um, if you let them know that you're claiming and she wants to get the spousal benefit in September. Perfect. Question three. If my wife claims her own benefit at her full retirement age... Will she receive any delayed retirement credits once she switches to her spousal benefit? Hmm. Uh, no. The delayed retirement credits only affect your own benefit. Uh, delayed retirement credits do not uh, increase a spousal benefit to which she could receive or she could be entitled to or a survivor benefit. Um, Delayed retirement credits, the only time they kind of transfer from one person to another is in the survivor category, and that would be your benefit. Uh, if you were to predecease her, any delayed retirement credits you created before passing away, they will apply to her survivor benefit as it switches over to her. But that's not what you were asking here. You were asking about that spousal benefit and the fact that she claimed it a month later once you claimed, which she has to wait. She had to wait that month past her full retirement age because you hadn't opened the door to her spousal benefit yet by claiming. There's not even a month's worth of delayed retirement credits that's going to help her out, though. It's uh, just the way that the system works. It's only going to her delaying if she chose to, which you're describing her not delaying by claiming her own benefit at her full retirement age, um, any delaying she does will not increase a spousal benefit, a potential that she would uh, be able to receive. Okay. This last question is a pretty good one. I'm not sure if you ever really addressed this. We've talked hmm. about the, the basics of what he's pointing out, but he's asking more of the operational procedures of it. He goes, I know that my wife's spousal benefit will be reduced by two-thirds of her government pension due to the government pension offset. He is correct on that. Mm -hmm. So uh, do you, you've talked about this so many times, but do you want to mention a little bit about what this is or not? Yeah, well, it's just real quickly. Any, any time you have a non-covered pension, uh, that would be a pension you earned at an employer that did not participate in Social Security, that non-covered pension is going to limit your potential spousal or survivor benefits that you might get from someone else. The someone else in this case is her husband. And the formula is your spousal or survivor benefit is reduced $2 for every $3 of your non-covered pension that you have. So um, her, her pension, that, as described by him as non-covered, is going to create a GPO situation for any potential spousal or survivor benefit she might receive from his record in the future. Okay, perfect. Um, do I need to tell, this is the continuation of that same question that Chris just um, clarified. Her pension is increased annually for inflation. Mm 
do I need to tell the Social Security Administration what her pension is, both initially when claimed and each year as it's adjusted for inflation? Or does Social Security have access to this information from the IRS or from somewhere else? He makes a good point. Mm -hmm. They're going to reduce by two thirds of her pension. Well, her pension is going up every year. Who keeps track of that? Well, the good news is um, they don't rely on you to tell them about this. Part of the deal back when they created these gave permission for these employers to not participate in Social Security. Part of the deal is they were required then to let Social Security Administration know about the pension and the pension amounts so that Social Security could make the proper adjustments. So you're not going to need to do anything. They're going to be notified from the pension system itself automatically without you doing anything uh, of the pension amount. And they will then make that proper adjustment for GPO and any changes to the pension, the pension system is required to let the pension, uh, sorry, the Social Security Administration know that. So you won't have to keep them up to date. It's going to happen automatically. And that's part of the requirement that these pensions uh, are, you know, have to face by opting out of Social Security itself. Perfect. So that's the, and that, that keeps people from, I mean, if, if it, they relied on you doing it, um, the temptation would be don't mention it, right? Don't don't say anything about this pension so you don't get a reduced uh, Social Security. They don't rely on you to do it. The pension system itself is required to to send that information regularly over to Social Security Administration. Okay, excellent. Now we're going to do, folks, a easier, shorter, more pithy and to the point hmm. Social Security question, kind of like me. Um. I will say, I don't know if you're going to get this hint. This mm. email came in a few days after the email you just read. So right at the beginning of March of this year. Uh, obviously, we were asking for hints back then. So he begins. Hi, Jim. Totally, again, blew you off in this, even though you're the Social Security expert. But <laughs> hi, Jim. I'm sure he meant, and Chris. Thanks for providing such an informative show each and every week. His hint. I, this one is obscure and depending because mm. I've never even watched about a TV show. I never even watched this show. If you are a geek of this insurance show, uh, insurance show, TV show, you uh, might actually know the, the answer. I live in a state that is the setting for the Outlander TV series when it moves to America. I guess it's from somewhere else. I never have you even heard of Outlander before you I've tried heard of it, but it? I haven't watched it at all. So I'm I don't I'm not gonna be able to get this. I have no clue. <laughs> I, I have no idea what Outlander is, and apparently it's from another country because when it moves to America, uh the setting is in this particular state. Mm. Yep, I give up. I haven't watched a moment of that show. All right, well, I'll narrow this down to a 50-50 chance. Oh. How's that? Okay. It's like a flip of a coin. Mm -hmm. We have two employees who work remotely, one from North Dakota, the other from North Carolina. One of those two states is the answer. So it's north. We know that. <laughs> we, we know it's north. <laughs> it's all relative, right? 
Um, it's north. It's north of the state that it shares names with. That yeah, is true. Yeah. So it's either North Outlander. I would. I'm going to say North Carolina because I think a show. No disrespect to North Dakota, but I think the terrain and and like stuff that you'd see on television would be a little too. Um, I'm going to offend people. Kind of boring. In North Have Dakota. you ever watched Fargo? Yes, and that terrain I would name, I would call kind of boring. <laughs> so, like, no, yeah, so I won't expand from there. So, uh, you know, it has its own beauty, but it's kind of the same beauty over and over and over again for miles. So I'm going to go with the more varied terrain and interesting trees and all that kind of stuff of North Carolina. You are correct, North Carolina. Oh, okay. okay. I don't know so if that's gotta, the reason it's there, but that's <laughs> if I were shooting a television show, I'd opt for Well, I would say, I mean, do you want to be freezing your hiney off in North Dakota or do you want to base yeah. it in North Carolina where at least it's kind of warm? That, yeah. Maybe that's maybe. their attitude. Yeah. I don't know. But it is North Carolina, not North Dakota. Okay. Um, okay. So question, rather short question. I retired five years ago and I just turned 60. I guess you would call that my gap year. I am adding nothing new to Social Security at this time. So I assume he means from five years ago when he was 55 to today when he's 60 and into the future, he hasn't added any more earnings. That's how I took it. I am adding nothing new to my Social Security benefits at this time. With the large COLA increase to Social Security last year, do I get the benefit of that increase? What does it only apply once my benefit has started? And I think you recently addressed something on this about what happens at age 60. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, did he skate under that? Because he might have been 59. Because he just turned 60, he said. And Mm -hmm. he sent us this in March of 2023. So this is... um a very confusing part of social security. I will say it doesn't get much press at all, but um, the cost of living adjustment he's talking about that, that everyone announces every October when they announce what it's going to be towards the end of the month, everybody waits for it. You can't miss it. And you know, all these articles, Oh, they're about to announce that we're guessing it's going to be this or whatever. And then they announce it. And then it's all over the place for a couple of weeks everywhere you look. That's the cost of living adjustment that applies starting in the year after you turn 62. So the inflation, the cost of living adjustments or inflation figure for the year you turn 62 is then given to you starting with your benefit in the year you turn 63, January of that year, whether you're claiming or not. So let me emphasize that. You don't have to have started benefits. So when he says, Will it only apply once my benefit has started? It has nothing to do with the benefit starting. It has everything to do with your age being 62. So he's not that yet. So all these cost of living adjustments you've been hearing lately, you don't get any of those. You don't get any of those. That's the bad news. The good news is up, in, up until this year, you've instead been getting the benefit of wage inflation adjustments. Those wage inflation adjustments track along with the cost of living adjustments, but are different. They measure the inflation of wages rather than the inflation of prices. 
And the wage inflation figures are what adjust your earnings record that ultimately generates your benefit. So you have been getting inflation adjustment benefits over the past few years. And the last one was 8.89%, right in line, you know, very competitive with that cost of living adjustment you heard about last year. The year before that, it was 283. The year before that, 3.75. So they're different than the cost of living adjustments because they're measuring something different, but they do tend to, to move kind of in the general direction. Uh, so don't fret too much. <laughs> you you uh, will start to get those cost of living adjustments starting when you, in the year you turn 63, so a couple years, three years from now. You're going to spend a little time now, though, next year, this year and next year, not getting additional adjustments. But, um, you know, the adjustment for the year you turn 62, you'll get. It'll just be slightly delayed. Uh, there's only one year that you miss, and we talk about that. You miss the any inflation adjustments in the year you turn 61, I think is what we finally determined. You You don't get, not you personally, but nobody does. There's actually a year where they're not giving you wage inflation and the year that's the, and you're also not getting cost of living adjustments yet. So um, it's just the way the system works. And the only unfair part of it is if you're unlucky and the year you miss is a above average year for inflation, you could argue you got harmed more by missing that year than someone who misses a year with below average inflation happening that year. But there's nothing you can do to control it. There's nothing, you know, it goes back. It's all determined by the day you were born, which leads to the day that you are 61 or 62. And just the luck of the draw about what's going on in the economy and inflation that particular year. So I'm going to stop there because we go off in a whole big tangent with that. But um, you've been getting wage inflation adjustments up till now. Um, those will now stop and you'll transition to cost of living adjustments. Once you turn 62, whether you claim or not, from that point forward, you'll start to get cost of living adjustments as announced, whether you've claimed yet or not. Okay. Was that my cue? That is your cue. Excellent. So let's move on to the new question of the week and a secure question. Uh, and then we'll just get into some older questions. Sound good? Okay. Perfect. And guess what, Chris? What's that? You will answer this one as well. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's not, folks, before you think, oh, God, another Social Security question. It's not another Social Security question, but it has to do with the IRMA, which is kind of closely related to Social Security. And Chris seems to be uh, defaulting, if you will, in the, in the office to the IRMA dude as well. So he's the Social Security geek and the IRMA dude. Okay, let me see if he gives us a hint. Oh, he does. Okay, uh, let me read it real quick. Ah. I'm going to say you have, I think in your mind and every listener's mind, you're going to choose one of two states, the correct one and the wrong, oh. one of three states, <laughs> the correct one and two wrong ones. Um but I think there's only three states that will pop into people's minds. And I bet you the state it really is, is probably the last one on their list of the three states that the answer to this question could be. So there's a little bit of a gym hint 
Okay. Okay. My state trivia question. I live in the state that has the largest county in the U.S. by land area. I think there's three states that'll pop into people's minds. Rhode Island not being one of them, I'm sure. I, I admit I, that did not <laughs> pop into my mind. I think there's three states that will pop into people's minds. The state with the largest county by land area. And again, folks, Chris and I do not mm. vet these questions. So people could be giving us pure BS questions. We have no idea if uh, they are accurate or not. I wonder if we need to put that in our disclosure. The state hints have not been vetted. <laughs> At the end, yeah. Um, huh. Um, what, are the, what are the three states popping into your mind? Um, well, Alaska due to its sheer size, but I've never heard of anybody talking about a county in Alaska, but you'd think they'd have enormous ones up there. Um, but I don't know why we hadn't have heard about that before. Uh, Texas, I would think again, because of its size. And then maybe Nevada or California, there might be four on my list that I would say have the potential of having the biggest yeah, I didn't um, think of Nevada. I put California, Texas, and uh, Alaska on my list. So you got four choices there. Yeah. What state has the largest county by land size or land area? And hurry up because people are waiting to get yeah, to the Irma question. Let's go with uh, let's go with Texas. Eh, I don't have a little sound effect. Uh, California, and the according to the mm. listener. San Bernardo County. San Bernardino. Huh? San Bernardino, not San Bernardo. Oh, yeah. Okay, there's a D. That is a very pop, you know, very common county. Actually, the If you look at it real quickly, it looks like Bernardo. Okay. San Bernardino, folks. San Bernardino County. I'm surprised there's not an Alaskan one. Will you let me finish? Okay, go ahead. Covers three million (laughs) acres. And is the largest county in the U.S. Oh, I discovered why Alaska is not the answer. Alaska is not, they're not divided into counties, (laughs) which you could argue is one just giant county. And that That makes Alaska just one big ass county. And they would win. (laughs) But uh, apparently that's why we don't hear about uh, big counties in Alaska. But uh, yeah, San Bernardino County, very um, popular, well-known, I guess, probably because of its size. It's enormous, apparently. So there you go. And there's some Irma Irma going on there. There's some Irma going on there. So dear Jim and Chris, I am a loyal listener and have learned so much from a great podcast, especially by Jim. He truly is brilliant. That is not what I said. I can tell. I didn't change my tone at all that time. So listeners, you can decide for yourself if it truly does say what I just read. I am turning 65 this month, May of 2023, and I'm being affected by Irma due to my Maggie from two years ago. Mm -hmm. Why don't we pause there, explain, because it could be new listeners who don't understand Irma and what he means two years ago. Okay. So Irma, which stands for Income-Related Monthly Adjustment Amount, more fondly 
are uh, affectionately known as the Medicare premium surcharges, essentially is a rule that if your Maggie, your modified adjusted gross income, is over certain limits, you're going to pay more for your Medicare Part B and D, as in dog, premiums than you would pay otherwise. And so the two-year-ago issue is the fact that in a year where they have to determine your Medicare premiums, they determine those at the beginning of the year. They have to know what to charge you as of January of each year. The latest information about your income that they have is actually from two tax years prior. So for January of 2023, for them to tell you what your Medicare premiums are going to be for that year, they're going to use your Maggie from 2021 because they have the 2021 tax return, which was filed likely in April of 2022. So as they're setting the premiums for January of 2023, that's the latest tax return they have access to. So that's why there's this kind of delay in determining your uh, Irma. And that's what he's talking about here. He's turning 65 this year, and therefore his Maggie from 2021, two years prior, determines his Irma brackets if, if he actually has that effect, which he must since he's mentioning that. Okay. You always get me when I close the email down. Okay. Nope, that's not it. Sorry. Hold on. It is so much easier, Chris, to print these damn things. I don't know why you think computers are easier. You can go back to doing that. Um, but then you make fun of me. <laughs> I can't see you. You could you could have it scrawled on a piece of rock for all I know. <laughs> scrawled on a piece of rock? Yeah. I mean, out there with a chisel? <laughs> yeah, you can. And, uh, I have no idea what you're reading them off of when you're at the uh, remote studio. I'm on my computer, but I only have one laptop. So every time I open up another window and look at something else, uh, the email I'm reading disappears and then I have to go back and find it. It's just, it's not efficient. Okay. Anyways, I can, uh, we'll move on. Okay. I have been and plan to continue making annual Roth conversions before the Tax Cuts and Job Act expires in 2025. I am doing this because I feel tax rates may increase after that time and also during the period as I delay Social Security. So we see this a lot, folks. We do see a lot of people trying to do tax planning before the Tax Cuts and Job Act expires at the end of 2025. So we just essentially have two and a half more years thereabouts uh, under the current lower tax rates before they go back to where they were. When it comes to doing Roth conversions, really the question, and I know I'm deviating here a little, Chris, but the question really is, what do you feel future tax rates will be? But also, whenever you're doing Roth conversions, this particular listener and all of you listeners, you should just be asking yourself, what is the goal of the conversion? And before you can establish the goal of the conversion, you should be asking yourself, what is my, not me personally, as in Jim, but you listening, what is my tax ordering priority? Who am I trying to reduce taxes for? Two of us as a couple, if assuming you're married, or in my case, me as a single person, but most people are married, two 
of us as a couple, one of us as a widow widower, because all indications show you may or will likely be impacted by the widow widower tax penalty. It's all but a given you will be impacted by the widow widower tax penalty. The degree is what remains unknown. Is it going to be minimal or is it going to be quite substantial? Or are you trying to optimize taxes for none of you? In other words, you're trying to optimize taxes for a, a child. That's the zero. I call that your tax ordering number, 210. Who are we tax planning for? And I think, Chris, you have to always answer that question first. Then it's going to make the rationale of doing a Roth conversion easier to decide. I don't convert a lot of my accounts, folks, for a variety of reasons. First of all, I freely said on this podcast, the majority of my wealth is tied up in two properties that I own and the goodwill of my business. I have very little liquid available retirement assets. I save. I save in my simple and Roth. But I get far more, in my opinion, ROI by taking money and just reinvesting it in my firm by letting the firm keep it and buy new software or do something. I feel that will benefit me greater in the future. So I don't have overly large accounts. And I don't go out of my way to convert. Because really, I've got no one but myself. And I just don't see that there's ever going to be a benefit right now to me converting. Now, if I get married in the future, if things work out and I stay with a woman long enough and, and I get married, then maybe I would consider converting to benefit her if the widow-widower tax penalty is going to come into play. So we all have different reasons for converting. One of the facts of converting is what this guy is running into. Is it going to be worth experiencing Irma, higher Medicare premiums for just one year to get more money into a Roth? And that's not necessarily what his question is all about, but it's something that you need to think of. Maybe it does make sense. I recently chatted with someone who... Uh, came to, to J Jacob was on the call with me, Chris, had a very unique case in the sense, very, very large IRA, had a daughter who was a spendthrift, not special needs, spendthrift, and was worried about leaving her very large inheritance with most of the money being in an IRA. So he told me, I'm going to create a trust to control her inheritance. And then he shared with me, I have a son who is a physician and is married to another physician. But I trust him and his ability to manage money. So I will leave his inheritance just to him. From a Roth conversion standpoint, Chris, and I know I'm going down a bit of a rabbit hole here, but hopefully people are finding this interesting. Did you sense a concern right off the bat with what I shared for both? Certainly. Um, leaving 
IRA assets to a trust that's going to control outflows, you're opening yourself up to vast amounts of taxes being applied to distributions from that IRA. So that's the old watch what you're doing uh, or or uh, be careful with naming a trust as beneficiary. The trust is going to probably do what he wants, but the cost for that in taxes, be, in taxes, income taxes, income taxes might be enormous. Will be enormous. It'll be the f- highest effective marginal rate over a ten-year period, as the IRA is distributed at his death into the special. Excuse me, it's not special needs trust into the spendthrift trust a trust that's simply going to hold assets to keep people from blowing it and and making mistakes. We'll chat in another show why that is. But in the case of the doctor and the doctor's wife, there is an issue there as well. What's that issue? Twofold, folks. You don't really want to leave an inherited IRA to someone who is in a career that is subject to lawsuits and being held personally responsible, as most physicians fear. So you would need to create a trust because an inherited IRA does not receive any protections. So there might be a need to leave a trust for the benefit of the doctor. And even if he felt there is no need to, or perhaps he lives in a state, and there's a handful of them, and I apologize, I don't have my Ed Slot book open in front of me, but there are a handful of states that we reviewed at our last meeting that now specifically do give credit or protection to inherited IRAs because the federal government does not. But even if no trust is needed, you're going to have an IRA being closed over a 10-year period and being put on the tax returns as income to a couple that by then will most likely be in the highest marginal bracket. You combine the salaries of two doctors, you are most likely exceeding the highest marginal bracket. Conversions were going to be a big benefit for this gentleman, and he's contemplating that. And it might make sense to incur Irma for a year or two, If the ultimate goal is the zero, if the ultimate goal is the one or the two, you might want to stay under the Irma brackets. Anyways, I just wanted to share that a little, that it's it's not binary. It's not yes, no, black, white, east, west, up, down. There's a lot to look at when you're evaluating the merits of a Roth conversion. And it should be evaluated through who will ultimately get the assets. If the government is going to get them, to hell with converting it. Why? They're just going to take it. Or charity, rather, I meant. Sorry, not the government. There's no need to convert assets that will go to a charity. They're just going to take it out in the first year you die and pay no taxes on it because they're a charity. Okay, that was my little deviation down a rabbit hole to get people to think of things in a broad scale when evaluating a Roth conversion strategy. Don't let the Irma dog wag your tail. Don't let the Irma tail wag the dog, not the dog wag the tail. Dogs always wag their tails. Uh, Don't let the Irma tail wag the dog, right? I said that right, right? That's right, yep. Okay, whew. 
See, when I get my brain going like that, it Lord only knows what comes out when I try to give a saying. But I nailed it. Don't let Irma be the deciding factor. The deciding factor should be your tax ordering number, 210. What is the order? 102, 012. In my case, I'm single. Right now, it's 10. If I do have a wife someday, it might be 01 because she will ultimately inherit it. And I don't care about what happens to me now. Or by then, it'll be a two. So the point is, put your tax ordering number in place and make your Roth conversion decisions on who you are ultimately looking to benefit. And if it means paying Irma for a year or two or three, so be it. Okay. Whew. I didn't expect to do that, but ah, screw it. Okay. So back to his question. <laughs> back to his question, folks. But I think that was a viable mm-hmm. rabbit hole that I want people to think of. Mm-hmm. Don't just let Irma direct everything. I have and continue. I'm reading his email again. I have been planning to continue to complete annual Roth conversions before the expiration of the tax cuts, yada, yada, yada. I anticipate tax rates will increase after that time and also while I delay Social Security. I understand that I could use SSA Form 44 to reduce my IRMA fees due to my retirement in 2021. Rather than me going down that rabbit hole, Chris, just explain what he's talking about with SSA Form 44. So because of this two-year look back that I described before, they realize that sometimes people will have transitioned and their income now is much lower So charging them Medicare premium surcharges or IRMA would be unfair because um, they're just dealing with old data from two years ago. So you can file a form and say, no, 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 please take mercy on me and don't look at my income from two years ago like you normally do. Please look at my more recent income instead because I've had a life-changing event and there's a whole list of life-changing events on there. One of them is a reduction of work. It's not called retirement on the form, just so you know. That's not one of the things listed. But guess what? Retirement is a form of a reduction of work. But be, be aware, just moving from full-time to part-time is a reduction of work. So you don't have to be retired to file SSA 44. Then there's a number of other rule, uh, life-changing events I won't go into on that form. But that's... That's what he's talking about there is just asking him to use more recent income figures instead of two years ago. Yeah, I I jokingly refer to SSA 44 as the get out of jail free card that uh, everybody loves getting when playing Monopoly. Okay, I understand that I could use SSA 44 to reduce my IRMA fees due to my retirement in 2021 if my current income was lower than two years ago. My question is whether I can wait to file SSA 44 after I finished my Roth conversions in 2024 or 2025, even though I retired in 2021. Do you want me to pause there so you can answer his question and clarify some things for him? Or, or I see what he's trying to do. He's trying to kind of hold on, hold off on filing the SSA 44 um, to get these conversions in and then pull it out and say, oh, by the way, I never used my get-out-of-jail-free card, so can I use it now? That's not the way it works. 
That's not the way it works. In any given year that you're filing, so SSA 44 for 2023 is essentially asking for forgiveness uh, or relief for 2023 Medicare premiums. It's looking at 2021. So if you're waiting until um, 2025, for instance, they're not considering 2021 anymore. So you're not going to be able to pull out and make an argument about something that happened in 2021. They're going to be looking for a life-changing event from two years prior. And you won't have one. Stopping doing Roth conversions is not one of the life-changing events on SSA 44. So um, no. (laughs) And this is an area that kind of throws a, a fly in the ointment for doing Roth conversions when you've reached Medicare age or even, you know, as you approach Medicare age. Because those big Roth conversions that might look like a great idea might throw you into some Irma. And just you're just going to have to think of Irma as some more income tax that you're going to have to pay effectively. It's not an income tax, but it's effectively an additional tax you're going to have to pay to pull off that Roth conversion. So anybody who is doing Roth conversion calculations or if you're having someone do them for you, make absolutely sure that they're figuring out calculations to make Roth conversions that include side effects like Irma. And there's a few others as well. Um, If you're doing really big ones, you might have some NIT, some uh, uh, effects that you're going to have to deal with as well. But we'll stay to the Irma topic and not head off on another tangent. But uh, um, yeah, his his idea of holding the get-out-of-jail-free card for a while and then calling upon it for some relief is not going to work because that's not not how these things work. Okay. All right, so where did I leave off in here? Blah, 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 blah. Okay. He continues. I know that many retirees like to use the time period before Social Security claiming to complete Roth conversions. So I think my question would apply to many of them. Even with the higher IRMA fees, I think the Roth conversions will be beneficial in the long run. Thanks for all your great retirement discussions. I think the two of us kind of addressed that last paragraph, mm-hmm. but did you want to add anything else? No, the only thing I'll point out too is sometimes for people who are trying to weigh these things and are facing Irma, it can uh, we find it can be beneficial. And you'd have to crunch your own numbers to determine if this is the case for you. Sometimes instead of doing conversions you'd otherwise do over maybe two or three years, maybe pile them all up into one year because what that will do is instead of exposing you to two or three years worth of Irma increases, there's just one year. You just kind of rip the, we call it ripping the Band-Aid off and just pay it one year. And then after that, hopefully you'll have Irma relief and then and then uh, income tax reduction relief as well if if you're in a you know situation with your tax brackets that it makes sense. So keep that in mind too. There's nobody... Nobody says you need to kind of spread out your Roth conversions arbitrarily. Might make sense to pile them up into a shorter period. Might pay a little more in income tax because you might penetrate up into another tax bracket. But look at the Irma effects. If the Irma effects are worse, it can make sense to do it that way. So just you know, another variable you have to consider when you're doing this kind of tax strategy. If you, well, I guess we could call it a strategy. Yeah. Since we're on the topic with this and my brain is thinking and Uh-oh. I'm certainly not looking to hit you with something, but I remember probably 
four or five months ago now, maybe three or four months ago, you, me, and Bob were chatting about a person who ran into an Irma thing where her income was higher than she stated, and she was being hit with somehow mm. like two mm-hmm. kind of taxes or two tax issues. Do you want to expand yeah. on some of that while we're talking about Irma, or am I going down a rabbit hole you don't uh, want I'll, to? I'll just mention it because I think it is worth paying attention to because um, – we ran into a case where somebody successfully filed an SS-844 to get relief, but then they subsequently did a Roth conversion. And essentially what that SSA-44 does is it says my income is going to be lower. But then if you do something to make your income higher again, they're going to pull it back from you. They're going to immediately, they're going to initially take your word for it and reduce your Medicare premiums. But then if you do something after that, that increases your income, like a Roth conversion, you're going to get hit. And it's kind of a double whammy. The, 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 you lose the, the relief that you had asked for and received for that year. And then two years later, you're going to pay Irma on, on that as well because of that two-year delay situation that happens um, regularly. So um, I, it's hard for me to describe it in more detail than that to people, but just give it as words of warning if you're going to do Roth conversions and you are trying to have an SSA 44 to try to reduce your Irma as part of that story, make sure that the timing works and you don't do certain things in certain years that undermines the relief you might have gotten with the SSA 44 request. That's what happened is someone, it, uh, um, <clears throat> the Roth conversion strategy made sense, and it, it still made sense even with the Irma effects, but it uh, was kind of a bad gotcha where, um, um, you know, essentially what you told them on the SSA 44 turned out not to be true because of your subsequent Roth conversion strategy. So just keep, let, keep let that in mind. I, you got to be watching all the variables. Let, let me see if I could kind of describe a scenario to you, and you tell me if this is kind of what happened. Let's just say someone is going to retire in 2023 this year, mm-hmm. okay? And in the year of retirement, they think, oh, I'm going to retire and I will be able to use my get-out-of-jail-free card. So I'm going to do a big Roth conversion also in 2023. But because of the fact that they were working as well, they didn't do as big a conversion as they would like to. But let's just say they did a conversion in 2023, the year they retired, the year they filed their get-out-of-jail-free SSA 44. Now, the 2023 year will be looked at in 2025, correct? So in 2025, Social Security is going to say, ooh, their income was high. We're going to nail them with Irma. And then Social Security is going to say, ooh, wait a minute. Here's their SS-44, or maybe they file it after they get the premium increase. But they say, oh, okay, that's their get-out-of-jail-free card. They're okay. Social Security, to my understanding, does not break down and say, oh, some was income, some was a Roth conversion. They just see it all as income. Do I have that part straight so far? That part is correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. So follow that, folks. That's 2023. They did a conversion, maybe not a massive one, because they had all this other income. Now 2024 comes around. They used their get-out-of-jail-free card in 2025 for the 2023 
income. 2024, they've already told Social Security, they've retired. They, there was a one and done. You can't keep using the get out of jail free card every year for, for retirement. So 2024 comes and now they're thinking, folks, wow, I don't have any income this year. I could do a massive Roth conversion. And in fact, because Tax Cuts and Job Act is almost ready to expire, I'm going to even go a little higher into the next bracket because it's going to be worth it because the next bracket is still lower than what the bracket's going to be January 1st of 2026. So they do a conversion that actually gives them income now greater than what they had in 2023. And now Social Security gets their state, their tax return. And they're going to say, and correct me if I'm wrong, but in a simplified manner, they're going to say, wait a minute. These people said they retired and their income is going to be lower. Social Security is not looking that you don't have any earned income. They're just looking at your tax return. They're not breaking it out. Oh, that's income. That's conversion. They're just going to see this big ass conversion. And they're going to turn around and say, these people, they lied. Or they're not being completely truthful. Or they don't know what the heck they're talking about. And that's what kind of happened. And that woman ended up getting nailed. Did that description describe what? I think that scenario, even if it's not exactly what happened in this case, it's that kind of activity that can cause this. What you, when you could otherwise have gotten relief with an SSA 44, you do something after that year of the lifetime of the life-changing event that blows it all up. And uh, again, they because of this delay and reporting and that sort of thing, they'll take your word for it at first, but they'll eventually get your modified adjusted gross income for each year. And if reality is different than what you claimed on that form, they're not going to send you to jail or anything, but they're going to come back and say, well, no, you, you know, we, we didn't charge you this because you said A and it turned out to be B and now we're going to charge you for this. And oh, by the way, remember that conversion also is going to affect your Maggie for the two years from now. So, um, yeah, it's that type of activity. So you just got to be eyes wide open as you're kind of navigating these waters because you can, um, it's pretty easy to mess up. It's, it's pretty easy. Okay. All right. We've got, uh, how much time do we have left? Do we have time, time for probably to... one more short one? Shorty one. Okay. Um, all right. This one is a secure two question. I know the answer to the first part. I'm 99.99999% sure I know the answer to the second part. But as typical with me, I question my own sanity sometimes. And I will double check my answer and let everybody know on the next show, probably the next EDU show uh, on Tuesday. That will record it on Tuesday. It'll play on Wednesday. But, uh, oh, you can chime in if you think I'm correct as well. But anyways, here it begins. Um, oh, they give a state hint. Ah. Oh, you're going to be able to get this one. I, I, I have faith. Good. I live in a quasi-state, and I'm from a commonwealth of the United States that has a national forest that is the only tropical rainforest in the U.S. national forest system. A quasi-state? Quasi-state. Aren't you either a state or you're not a state? <laughs> um, 
but rainforest. There's rainforest. The quasi-state where yeah. U.S. currency is accepted. Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico. Yep. Is that it? Yeah. Yep. I've been there many, many times mm-hmm. when I was younger, when I was in my 20s. Um, used to go there to actually practice Gojuru Karate when I was a member of the UMass Karate Club, when I used to do a lot of that. And I ended up dating a woman from Puerto Rico and would visit. And very nice place, or at least it was. This is a story I've never heard before. Ago. And there's a lot of we've them known, you don't we've, know. We've known of each other a long time. I've never heard of this. Yeah, no, we'll have no, to expand on that in the future, not on the show here. We're running out of time. There's a lot I never but. shared with you. But yes, that was my Puerto Rico times. And, and my skin would get so tan and so dark, I think because of the Portuguese in me. Um and apparently my eyes are really nice, but they look even better, apparently, when I have a tan. Uh, everybody thought I was uh, from Puerto Rico. I'm Puerto Rican, and they would mm. uh, talk to me in Spanish, mm-hmm. and I'd have yeah. to tell them, so, sorry. And most of them could speak English. Um, but anyways, that's neither here nor there. Okay. This is a Secure Act 2 question. <clears throat> question one. Are the year of death required minimum distributions required? Does the beneficiary inheriting the IRA need to complete the year of death RMD of the decedent in all cases, whether it's the 10-year rule, the five-year rule, the ghost life expectancy rule? I'm asking because what if the deceased passes away in the month of December? There's not going to be enough time to withdraw the RMD by the end of the year. This must happen from time to time as account transfers cannot possibly happen that quickly. Yes, the year of death RMD must happen and must be taken by December 31st of the year of death because it is the year of death RMD for the decedent. So let's explain. This particular George, I'm not sure if it's male or female, this particular George is talking about someone who owns an IRA and dies after their required beginning date, April 1st of the year following the year they turn, now 73. So it's someone who owns an IRA, has named a beneficiary, never took their RMD, died in December, and is now leaving the IRA to someone else. Because they died after their required beginning date, there is an RMD required. It has to be taken by December 31st. And these people are saying, this George is saying, it's not going to be enough time. And you're right, listener, there isn't enough time, but it doesn't exempt you from taking the RMD. So if the RMD is late, because you're also right, the custodian is going to want to create beneficiary IRAs for everyone, although the year of death RMD will be paid out to the beneficiary, they need the beneficiary's Social Security number because it's taxed to the beneficiary, not the estate. And most custodians don't have a software set up. It's just going to go on to the Social Security number, the account owner. So they're going to require a beneficiary IRA first to be set up so they can collect all the suitability, all the information they need for the success of beneficiary and pay it out. It just is a nightmare. And the the IRS 
doesn't take that into consideration. And Congress did it when they created this rule. But there is a way to appeal it. We talked about that. You would just file form 5329 and explain why the RMD is late. Mm -hmm. And I can all but guarantee you, even post Secure 2, where the penalty is dropped from 50% to 25 and possibly as little as 10 if you file certain things in time. And we said we feel the IRS is going to be unforgiving now in most cases. I don't think they're going to be unforgiving at all if you say they died on Christmas. There was not enough time to do this. We took care of it immediately. And this is never going to happen again because we have everything all set up. We just didn't have enough time. And they're not going to hit them with a penalty. Do you agree? I, I agree. I think that's one you're going to pretty much always get forgiveness on. Yeah. So don't panic over it. Government knows things aren't going to get done quickly. But they made the rule that the year of death RMD must be taken. So um, don't panic if the person died too late. Okay. Next question. And this one, I'm pretty sure I know the answer, but I'm putting a big caveat out there. My, my mind is playing doubting games with me, even though I feel very confident in this answer. Chris, you can say if you uh, agree or disagree. She continues. What about the successor beneficiary? I was born in 1971. Uh, let me back up and explain the situation. My mother, born in 1943, died in 2021. This was pre-secure one. Date of death. No, it wasn't. No, pre-secure, pre-secure two. One. Oh, let me, excuse me. I got to back up to the next bullet point. I apologize, folks. I know you wanted me to get through this quickly. She has this all bullet pointed out instead of written out. The original owner, she continues, I inherited an IRA recently as successor beneficiary. That simply means, folks, she inherited an IRA from someone who had already inherited an IRA. That's called a successor beneficiary. You can have a primary beneficiary, a contingent beneficiary, and a successor beneficiary. Don't confuse contingent and successor. They're two totally separate. Successor beneficiaries is a beneficiary who inherits an IRA from someone who already inherited an IRA. Okay. I inherited a traditional IRA as a successor beneficiary. The original owner was my uncle who died in 2012. Before Secure One. She is correct. Secure One happened just a few years ago in 2020. The first beneficiary was my mother, who died in 2021. This was uh, Secure. She keeps saying this was pre Secure One, but it's not. Well, it is because not when she died, but she was taking RMDs based on pre-secure rules. Oh, I get it. So yes, she was. She the mom correct. was stretching from 2012 the, until the 2021. The mom was pre-secure one. That's yeah. where I was getting confused. Yeah. So in English, folks, the mother inherits an IRA from her brother. Yep. The brother died in 2012. So the mother was allowed to stretch the IRA over her remaining life expectancy. 
Chris, do you have a calculator? Because I don't. The mother was born in 1943. She died in 2021. How old was she when she died? Okay, as people she was as Chris, 77 or 78, depending on what time of the year she was born. Okay, let's say 77. So the mom died at 77. Now, the mom died in 2021. Mm-hmm. And she is wondering, my mother was grandfathered into using her life expectancy and was able to do a stretch. Mm-hmm. That is true, folks. When Secure One passed in 2020, they didn't say to everybody who was a, a beneficiary of an inherited IRA, oh, you are subject to the 10-year rule. They didn't exempt them. So they told her mother, you can continue to stretch. You are grandfathered in. But what they specifically made clear was a successor beneficiary post-secure one and post-secure two. A successor beneficiary is not grandfathered. Even though someone who is already stretching can continue to stretch. And the rule under those grandfathered rules are if the successor beneficiary dies, excuse me, the primary beneficiary, the first person who inherited it, if, if they die, the successor under the old rules could step into their shoes. That's kind of the way we worded it. Step into their shoes and continue stretching that IRA for the remaining years of the original beneficiary. So if the mom, when she died at 77 or 78, still had 14 years under the old rules, the daughter would have stepped into the mom's shoes and kept that IRA open for another 14 years or whatever the numbers come to. But Congress made perfectly clear, we will grandfather existing stretch candidates But when they die, successor beneficiaries no longer step into their shoes. They are subject to the 10-year rule. So I want to be perfectly clear on that, and that's what she's wondering. So she's essentially asking, and she references an article from 2010. Don't read 2010 articles, folks. They don't apply anymore. Here's what's going to happen to you, listener. And it doesn't matter, in my opinion, and this is what I'm unsure of, but I will check. Remember, under Secure One, the whole 10-year rule was adopted. And the IRS came out with a concept in October of 2020. And they referenced ALAR, A-L-A-R, at least as rapidly. And they said, if you are subject to the 10-year rule, it differs from the five-year rule that we have used forever, practically. And under that rule, you just had to close the IRA by the fifth year. You didn't have to take out any RMDs. But under ALAR, the government said, or the IRS interpreted, at least as rapidly. And they said, if the person you inherited the IRA from died before their required beginning date, you did not have to take any money out of the IRA. 
for the first nine of those 10 years. You just have to close it in the 10th year, assuming you weren't allowed to stretch. But if the person died after their required beginning date, in other words, they were being forced to take RMDs, you had to, for the first nine years, take out required minimum distributions based on your life expectancy, not the dead person's, yours. And even though that's not technically, at least as rapidly, if the person who inherited it is younger than the decedent, the IRS's point was, we just want to see money coming out every year for those nine years. And in their eyes, that's at least as rapidly. And then it has to be fully closed by the 10th year. However, her mom was 77. So you might be saying, oh, okay, she's going to step in. She cannot step into the shoes of the successor beneficiary, her mom, and continue stretching over her mom's life expectancy, which I bet is about 14 or so years for a 77-year-old. She has to take it in 10 years. And her mom was over her required beginning date, so she also must take money out for the first nine years. Don't look at it that way, folks. At least as rapidly would apply even if the mother was only 50 because the mother was already being forced to take stretch distributions. So you would step in, stretch distributions stop, and the 10-year rule applies. And you will have to, in my opinion, take RMDs for the first nine years not based on your mom's remaining life expectancy, but based on yours. And that's what I'm unsure of. That's the only thing I'm unsure of on all this tirade. I know this woman, I don't know this woman personally, but I know she is going to have to be subject to the 10-year rule. She cannot step into her mom's shoes and continue for the mom's remaining life expectancy. She will have to take RMDs for that 10 year, nine year period and fully close it by year 10. I am pretty certain it is going to be based on her life expect, her being the, the, the daughter, her life expectancy, single life table, not the mom's remaining years. But I'm also doubting it, Chris, because I thought I might have heard that if the person stretching had less than 10 years the successor beneficiary they have to continue with their life expectancy and their payout schedule rather not their own life expectancy and that's what i'm unsure of whose life expectancy do you know i i i'm doubting myself and i i think it's hers I think it's the I think it's the daughters. The daughters over the ten years. She's she's now stuck in the ten year rule and she has to take RMDs, but those RMDs are gonna be based on her age is what I believe. But I do think and, you know, there's this o- an opening I'm enough sure. of doubt that we'll right. conf- we'll confirm it and we'll get back to you next week. <laughs> and that's the one thing and I, I thought I'm gonna answer this question because it's a secure question and I said if a secure question comes in, I'll answer it. And I didn't pay attention to it. It just said secure in the title. And when I started reading it, when you were answering social security questions, I went, uh-oh. 
And in the back of my mind, I thought I remember in the Ed Slot program, not this past time, but the year before when Secure First came out, that a successor beneficiary, someone who inherits an account from someone who already died, uh, excuse me, someone who inherits it from someone who already inherited it from someone who died, so the, the successor, when they step in, if that person was grandfathered into the stretch under the old rules, they would continue with the remaining stretch years that were left or 10 years. Yeah. And I'm not sure. And I don't think that's right. And I right. And I think it, it seems like it should be right because that would that would adhere to the at least as, at rapidly, least as rapidly. Right. Yep. Whereas a younger person stepping in, they're going to have a longer life expectancy. So those RMDs are going to be shorter. But I think since the year has gone by more recently, they've discovered that they're applying ALAR on that 10 year, you know, the 10 year accomplishes it, even though the, the yearly RMDs might be lower, the fact that it gets closed within 10 years meets the ALAR definition. So I, I still think it's going to be on the daughters. Um, but you're right, there's, you need to check. check it to make sure we might uh, both be on right. the wrong side of this thing. Because ALAR is confusing, because you would think at yeah. least as rapidly means, right. let's just say the mom was 87, not 77. There might be six years left. I don't know, but it wouldn't be too many at 87. Let's just say six. So you would think the IRS would say, well, you can step in and um, take the, your mom's payments for the next six years and then fully close it. You can't take distributions under your life expectancy and close it in year 10 instead of year six. That's not at least as rapidly. That's how you think the law would work. And that's where I'm unsure. I'm doubting myself. Okay. So you all can kind of guess or start Googling this. I haven't had a chance. I will get it straight from the man himself I'll, well, or his minions, one or the other. I'm pretty sure the way Chris and I are describing it, the daughter is going to use her life expectancy and keep it open for 10 years, nine years of RMDs based on her single life expectancy, and then close it in year 10 rather than stepping in and using the remaining, what I think are probably 13 or 14 years for the mother, um, rather than using the mother's RMDs, which would be significantly bigger than the daughter's. Right. You would think under ALAR it would be the latter, but I don't think so. Yeah. So we'll check. Anyways, okay. interesting question. That is and it made me yeah. think. And, and that's the thing, folks. We don't expect... Chris and I to know all this at all times. And this also shows you we literally sometimes are reading these emails for the first. Chris all the time is reading them for the first time or hearing them, except when I'm gone and I send them questions. But here's a simple case where if I would have just paid closer attention to this, I would have had this all cleaned up. But I thought, no, I'm going to I'm going to make a stab at this and I will let everybody know uh, on Wednesday if uh, my stab was right or wrong. OK, well, that sounds good. Well, that. Brings us where we got to wrap. So uh, uh, we went on some tangents today. So the quantity of questions wasn't up there, but we covered a lot of ground. That is for sure. So we thank everybody for sending in those questions. If you want to send in your own questions, send them directly to Jim. His email address is jim at jimhelps.com. And uh, put in the subject line, it's a question for the podcast. And um, the show can't work without questions. So we really appreciate those who send them in. The hints have been good lately. 
So where people are starting to get into this whole giving us hints for the states. And uh, uh, all I'll ask for is since I'm the one who has to respond to these trivia questions, make them... Harder. Oh, no, no, no. Make them, I mean, someone who isn't like really geeky on that particular state. Make them challenging, but... You know, the Outlander one, that one's so niche specific. Uh, that one was kind of a stretch. So, uh, you know, throw me a bone every once in a while. The, I like the, the large salty lake. And although there is a salty lake in California that is shrinking, the Salton Sea is what it's called. I looked that up while we were talking. But, um, yeah. So Utah. there is a salt lake in, in It's not in called California? that, but it's got to be salty because it's all, yeah, it's, it's, got all kinds of dissolved things in it so and i've heard it doesn't smell very good either so um anyway that brings us to the end of the show and uh everyone take care and we'll be we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show you have listened to jim on the radio read his quotes in the media and enjoyed his banter on itunes but even now you may wonder what sets jim salmier and associates apart from other financial planning companies the answer is quite simple Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 